until you leave. We're, uh, we're going to start a brand new series uh, this morning, um, walking through uh, the, the major themes of the book of Exodus uh, over the next month or two, next eight weeks. So I guess that would be two months. And uh, I, I was thinking about that um, uh, really over the last uh, few weeks, um, but especially as we dive in uh, this morning. There is a song that we sang uh, a minute ago uh, called Highlands, Song of Ascent, okay? And uh, it says uh, this, so I will praise you on the mountain. And that's pretty easy, right, to praise God on the mountain, right? When you're at the top and you're looking out and everything is good, right? Uh, and it says, and I will praise you when the mountain's in my way. Like when out of nowhere you look up and something incredibly difficult and heavy and hard is in front of you and there's no way around it. You got to go, you got to go through it, over it. Uh, and then it says, you're the summit where my feet are, so I will praise you in the valleys all the same. In other words, what, what the author of, of this song is saying is that where, wherever I'm at, if you're there with me, that's the summit. So whether I'm at the top, whether I'm at the bottom, whether life is good or whether life is hard, uh, God, if you're with me, um, that, that's going to be the best place. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. God, God doesn't leave us in the shadows of our suffering. Uh, and, and not only that, but he is still faithful even when the night leads me astray. When I decide to walk away, God is still faithful. And the chorus says, and if ever I walk through the valley of death, I'll sing through the shadows my song of ascent. Uh, that's an interesting line um, that actually requires a little bit of uh, digging. Um, in, in Israel, Jerusalem is uh, at one of the highest places uh, geographically. It's just, it's height above sea level. But it's in the south. Uh, for those of us who live up here in the north, anytime we head south, we always say we're going down, right? We go down south. Almost anywhere that you live uh, in Israel, you have to travel south. Now, you can live south of Jerusalem and have to travel north, but it's interesting. Even if they're traveling south, they still say that they're going up to Jerusalem. The reason they say they're going up to Jerusalem is because it's at one of the highest points in Israel. And so there are actually uh, 14 psalms, uh, 15 uh, psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are known as the Psalm of Ascents. And they would sing those songs as they were walking up to Jerusalem. Some of them you probably uh, might even recognize. Let me read you just the first line of some of those psalms. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Psalm 121. I call on the Lord in my distress. The first line from Psalm 120. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. The first line of Psalm 130. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. First lines of Psalm 129. A lot of the Psalms of Ascent are songs of remembrance that as they're going up to be with God, to meet with God, to worship God, to celebrate what God has done, still starts off remembering times of suffering. You ever felt stuck in the shadow of suffering? 
Like, man, it's heavy. And it's thick. And, and I can barely see. I feel like I'm living in a fog. Um, Sarah was conceived in adultery. Sarah's mom did not tell Sarah's stepdad. She allowed him to believe that it was his daughter. And uh, when Sarah was two, uh, Sarah's mom got pregnant uh, again, uh, this time by her husband. And after the baby was born, she couldn't hold the secret anymore, and she finally told her husband that Sarah was not his child. Uh, this man was not a good man, and uh, he exploded. Um, literally tried to drown Sarah, who was two at the time. Uh, she did survive. Uh, he demanded, though, that uh, she be removed from the house. And so Sarah was then given to um, her grandmother to be raised. And uh, those were some of the happiest uh, years of, of Sarah's life. Um, she says she can remember being a young child and uh, her grandmother reading to her and them uh, playing games together and her grandmother singing over her, uh, her grandmother taking her to church. But her grandmother got cancer and passed away uh, fairly quickly when she was um, five years old. Uh, Sarah had not had any contact with her mother or her stepfather. They had not talked, they had not seen. She did not know that there were four other siblings now in the family, and yet she had no place else to go, and so she was returned to her mother and stepfather at their house. Uh, Mike Wilkerson uh, shares her story. Sarah is not her real name. And he says this, he says, Sarah was an outcast in her own home, and her stepfather treated her like an animal. If she angered him, he might force her to eat her food on the floor from a dog dish or lock her out of the house. Once when she was in first grade, he locked her out for a whole week without food, water, or a change of clothes. She slept outside in the grass and awoke each morning to walk alone to the school bus, her hair matted with dirt and leaves. At least at school, she could escape to a place where she felt human, but she couldn't escape for long. There was always more pain waiting for her when she returned home. And then it got worse. Um, I'm not going to share with you uh, the details of what that means uh, that Mike shares in the book. But suffice it to say, whatever you think, it was probably even worse than your thoughts. Now, we hear a story like Sarah's, right? And uh, it brings up all kinds of things. Uh, but one of the things that it often has a tendency to do is make us think that we've not really suffered then, right? Because like that, that's suffering. Cruel, unjust excruciatingly awful. Uh, Mike said he was um, talking with a friend of his, and his friend had just a couple months earlier uh, found out that uh, after uh, months of testing that he had a disease that, that there really wasn't a cure for and uh, was, was going to be something he would have to live with the rest of his life, and there were still more tests to come uh, to learn some more things, and uh, it was a really, really dark time for his friend. Um, 
it was a couple months after that diagnosis, and uh, Mike was having a conversation with him, and he's sharing some uh, just junk that was happening in his own life, some pain that was happening in his own life. And as he's sharing, all of a sudden, he realized, oh, man, I'm talking about stuff that must, is just so, like, tiny compared to what my friend's going through. And so he just started to kind of stop. And his friend uh, knew exactly what Mike was doing and knew exactly why Mike was doing it. And Mike says that his friend put his hand on his shoulder and looked at him and he said, uh, it's okay, welcome to the pain club. You see, because every single one of us is in the pain club. Uh, your pain might not be as great as my pain and my pain might not be as great as, as, as her pain and but we all are in the painting club. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to be or not, most of the time it's not even something that, that we chose. Yeah, sometimes we screw up, we make dumb decisions and we pay some consequences for that, but often it's stuff that happens to us or stuff that feels random. The pain club comes for everybody. Even if you're not in it right now, the truth is, is that suffering is not something that we can avoid as much as we wish that we could, as much as we try to, as much as we want to. Maybe you've suffered through cancer. Uh, maybe it's another disease. Maybe it's a health problem that won't go away. Uh, maybe your marriage imploded. Or a spouse or a friend was taken from, taken from you unexpectedly. Maybe it was a wayward child. Or you love someone that is struggling with something that you can't do anything to help them fix. Maybe it's been addictions Maybe bad choices. Maybe it's been mental health struggles that feel overwhelming. Maybe for some it's the pain of infertility. For others of you, especially my brothers and sisters that are black and brown, people of color, there are systems of oppression that you probably feel helpless against. A suffering that, quite honestly, I can choose to ignore. But you cannot. Maybe like Sarah, you've experienced abuse and betrayal by the very people who are supposed to protect you. Pain comes in all forms, all shapes, and all sizes. Suffering, as much as we all wish we could avoid, is something that comes for us all. And suffering winds up uh, shouting questions at us, doesn't it? Where is God? That does he even exist? And, and if he exists but doesn't stop your suffering, can you actually trust him? Should you trust him? We find Israel at the very beginning of the book of Exodus in deep in the pain club. The, the shadow of suffering is surrounding them in a way that, that feels almost impossible for them to bear. It's overwhelming. But before I have you open up to Exodus chapter 1, I do think that it's important that we get just a little understanding of what the book of Exodus is and what it's actually about. See, a lot of times when we hear the book of Exodus, if you grew up in church or you watched The Prince of Egypt when you were growing up, okay? And there's all kinds of ways you'd learn about the book of Exodus. We generally assume it's a, a book about uh, this guy named Moses, 
And uh, he has some crazy interactions. He meets this bush that's on fire. And then he's got this staff that like sometimes turns into a snake and does miraculous things like part the Red Sea. And like when we think of Exodus, we usually think of Moses as the main character along with uh, Israel and Pharaoh. And uh, there's some really cool stories in it. Um, But that's not true. Moses isn't a main character. Moses is actually one of the supporting characters. There's actually only one main character in the book of Exodus, and that is God. You see, the book of Exodus is actually a book about God. It's a book about his inexhaustible love. It's a book about his rescue. And at the end, it actually begins to point us towards Jesus. You see, as a Christian, we can't read the Old Testament without reading it through the lens of the New Testament. Uh, We see the things that Jesus did, and we are able to then reinterpret some of the things that happen in the Old Testament. They help us understand them even better. Uh, In fact, the the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, uh, are trying to highlight Jesus as a new and better Moses. Jesus actually is the son of a king. He actually winds up in Egypt for a time, comes back and... He doesn't go through the Red Sea, but he does get baptized in the Jordan River. And just like Moses goes up on a mountain to meet God and then bring back God's law to the people, God's message to the people with the Ten Commandments, uh, Jesus, Matthew said, goes up on a mountain and delivers the Sermon on the Mount where he actually brings a new law. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, it's a better law. In fact, Moses has a covenant with God that Israel would become God's people. Uh, Jesus actually creates a better covenant in his blood, in his death and resurrection, where all the peoples of the world who will turn to him now can be a part of the family of God. There's so many things, and so I think that it's important before we dive into this morning's text that we understand what Exodus is actually about. It's about God. It's about his inexhaustible love. It's about how He rescues, and ultimately it points us to the ultimate rescue, Jesus himself. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Exodus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We'll have some folks that will hand you out a Bible. You can follow along with us. Exodus chapter 1, or pull it up on your phone, whatever you want to do, your tablet. Before I dive into Exodus 1, though, uh, it's important that um, I read to you a couple of verses from the very end of Genesis. You see, Exodus doesn't live in a vacuum. Uh, it's part of this story that actually starts in Genesis. Genesis is, of course, the story of the creation of the world and its perfection and the calling that God gives to Adam and Eve. But then uh, they blow it with the fall. They make a mistake. They rebel from God. And uh, then sin enters the world. And as a result, the whole story of Scripture from then on is God trying to win his people back, his creation back, him trying to woo us back. And so what he does is he actually chooses a man named Abraham, and he says to Abraham he wants to bless Abraham uh, with a a large family, which is exactly the blessing that God had given to Adam and Eve, that they would multiply and and grow. So that blessing then gets passed on uh, to Abraham's uh, second child, actually, Isaac, and then on, from Isaac on down to Jacob, who's one of my favorite characters in, in Scripture, because he's so messed up. 
And then Jacob finally has uh, 12 sons, and, and the youngest son is, is Joseph, the second youngest. And uh, Joseph is hated by his brothers, so they sell him into slavery, where he ultimately, eventually winds up in Egypt. He's a slave. And uh, God winds up doing amazing, miraculous, powerful works through Joseph's faithfulness to worship Yahweh. And he winds up becoming the second in command in Egypt, and he actually saves Egypt. He knows from God that a famine is coming, and so he's like, hey, it's, we got a famine coming in seven years, God told me, so we're going to store up food for the next seven years so that the seven years of famine, we're actually going to have enough to be able to care for our people, and God does this amazing thing. And through that, Joseph's brothers, a whole family, his dad and all of his family, they wind up coming to Egypt to survive. So God uses... Joseph to save Egypt and also to save Israel. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus. Uh, actually, let me read before we get into Exodus 1. Let me read um, verse 24 of Genesis 50, the very last verses. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he's like, hey, we're not going to stay here forever. God will come, and he will move us out of this land, back to the land that God had promised. He says, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So there's 70. 70 that come. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Do you know why they're called the Israelites? Because there's only 70 of them at this point. Jacob, who is Joseph's father, actually has a wrestling match with God, and spoiler alert, he loses, and uh, that's when he says to God, uh, God, uh, I'm going to hold on to you, I won't let go, because if I let go, I'm toast, I'm done, I'm over, and finally he realizes who he is, his name means deceiver, trickster, and that's when God changes his name to Israel. And that's why the Israelites are known as the Israelites because God changed the heart of a deceiver, of a trickster, of a guy who likes to take matters into his own hands and turns him into someone new, someone whom God will fight for and fight with. And so the Israelites number about 70 after they die, uh, but they are exceedingly fruitful and multiplied greatly, increasing in number, becoming so numerous that the land was filled with them. Do you see how many different words get used to talk about how many babies these folks is having? Okay? Exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, became so numerous the land was filled with them. This is exactly what God has promised to Abraham, what he wanted to do through uh, the first people, Adam and Eve, and it's actually starting to happen now. Like they're having babies on babies on babies, like tons and tons of babies coming out. They're growing. Verse 8, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. 
Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses and Alabama and Arkansas and Virginia as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now it's easy to kind of sit up here and um, think like that's a really long time ago, totally different place, a different culture. And so we just don't really kind of, I think, uh, fully understand what that may have been like. A slavery in our country even kind of feels so far away that we kind of forget. Like you maybe watch something on PBS and you see some of the, some of the pictures and you're like, oh my goodness. And if all of a sudden kind of feels real, you'll see uh, a black man or a Mexican man who was lynched. And all of a sudden you think, ah, oh, that, that, that's like the, our, the scourge on our soul, right, as Americans. But that still feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? And we start talking about this and we're talking like, Six, seven thousand years ago, four thousand, five thousand—I don't remember exactly—but a long time ago. Listen to uh, an Egyptian historian, an ancient Egyptian, who actually wrote what it was like. They say to him, "Give us corn. There is none there." Then they beat him as he lies stretched out and bound on the ground. They throw him into the canal and he sinks down, head underwater. His wife is bound before his eyes and his children are put in fetters or chains. If we take a second to actually think and put ourselves there, look at, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a father, like beat me. Beat me. Don't touch my kids. Don't touch my wife. And they describe a scene where the oppressors, the slave masters, come and they say, give us corn. And they already know he doesn't have corn. It's been stolen, destroyed, eaten, whatever. He's working his tail off trying to get something together because he knows they're coming. And when they ask for the very thing they know he doesn't have and he then, of course, can't give it to him, they stretch him out with ropes and they start to beat him. And after they're done beating him, still tied up, they throw him into the canal and they wait for him to sink down to where he'll drown. While he can still see, though, they take his wife and they tie her up and they take his kids and they put them in chains, helpless. Can you imagine if that was today? What, what, what we would think and what we would do and how we would feel and... See, friends, just because it's a, a few thousand years ago doesn't mean it isn't any less real or tragic or, like, unbearable or insane or just flat-out wrong, right? It's unjust. This should not happen. But here they are. 
Uh, in fact, God had already told Abraham that this was going to happen. Back, way back in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham that his people were going to wind up in Egypt and they were going to be enslaved and that he was going to come and rescue them. In fact, that's why Joseph, at the end of his life, is saying, hey, we're here, but we're not always going to be here. God wants to bring us back and someday he's going to come and he's going to help us return. The problem is they've been stuck in part one for a long time. We don't know exactly how long, but at this point it's been generations. They feel helpless. There's nothing they can do about it. They're stuck. The weight of suffering feels overwhelming. I mean, we're talking real people who are really getting killed and beaten and tortured. Families are being stripped away and and they're stuck in part one, and they're wondering, when, when is part two coming? When is part two? When is it that God actually shows up and does something about this? Now, uh, there's two types of questions that I think get asked by all of us. Uh, the first type is uh, the questions of understanding. These are questions that we ask when we're not in the fire of suffering, right? When we see other people that are suffering, maybe we've already been through the fire, we're on the other side. Maybe we have a good friend that is suffering. We'll ask questions of understanding. They're fair questions, they're good questions. And every single one of us asks them, right? Does God exist? If he does, where in the world is he? And if he exists but is doing nothing, or at least nothing that I can see or understand, to stop the pain, can I actually trust him? These are philosophical questions. These are questions of the head. And I wish that I had uh, four or five hours to get into all of the philosophical arguments and understandings, the biblical understanding of suffering and all that it entails. It's often called theodicy, which is if, uh, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, why doesn't he stop all suffering? And I don't have time to get into all of it today, but I do want to give you just a couple of little things because uh, Christians, we, we do view suffering different than our modern secular culture. Christians view suffering different than most other major religions. <laughs> that is the sweetest cry. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> and at a very apropos place. Modern secular culture says that this life is all that we have. Okay. Modern secular culture says that there is no soul, there is no afterlife, uh, and therefore the only place that you get to experience happiness is here and now. All right. Uh, for modern secular culture, the meaning of life is actually happiness. Happiness is the meaning of life if there is nothing else afterwards. So therefore, uh, you need to go on that vacation. Right. You need to get what you can get, buy what you can buy, Run from pain and by any means necessary, avoid suffering. Because the truth of the matter is, suffering by definition destroys the meaning of life. Suffering, even more than death, becomes the enemy to run from. At least when you die, you don't know it anymore. But suffering, suffering tells you that you are not enjoying the meaning of life for those of us that ascribe to a secular modern culture. Now, this is not what the Bible says, 
But I think, quite honestly, there's way too many Christians that actually fall prey to that understanding. And so we live for the now. YOLO, baby. Um, Tim Keller uh, wrote a book on suffering, and he walked through, uh, real briefly, some different ways that different religions and philosophies uh, engage with the concept of suffering. He says this, Christianity teaches that unlike the fatalism of Islam, suffering can't always simply be endured. Suffering can actually be overwhelming. Unlike the transcendence of Buddhism, suffering is not merely an illusion. Suffering is very real. Unlike the moralism of karma, suffering isn't just returning to you something you deserve. Suffering is often terribly unfair. You can ask Sarah about that one. And unlike secularism, suffering doesn't destroy the meaning of life. Suffering is actually meaningful. There's a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Suffering doesn't destroy the meaning of life for the Christian. It actually gives it purpose. Not that suffering is good. Do not hear me say that suffering is good. It's not. But it can be used by God for good. Uh, The Christian has a very different narrative, right? Uh, Happiness is not the end goal. Uh, The end goal for the Christian is actually uh, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, Questions that the person not in the furnace of suffering is asking are different, though, than questions that people who are in the furnace of suffering ask. Uh, For those of you who maybe are asking questions of survival right now, these are usually not intellectual questions. Questions of survival are actually questions of the heart. They're questions of the emotions. Those of you that are in the midst of suffering right now are asking, how can I survive this? Can I actually survive this? Can I survive this without losing the most important parts of myself? I've been there. Uh, I can still remember um, uh, our first house. Uh, I was in the living room. Um, there was something going on that I, that I knew was there, uh, but I was trying to avoid it or at least avoid uh, answering the question uh, that I didn't want to answer. Uh, I just didn't want to think about it. I wanted to pretend that it didn't exist and just assume that it was going to go away. But it wasn't. And uh, I, I can remember because I, uh, Brenda wasn't home at the time. It was in the evening, and my, uh, I was on the phone with my mother, and, and we were having a conversation about this question that I did not want to ask. And when she asked the question out loud, I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice but to really start thinking about it. And I already knew what the answer was. And I didn't like the answer. I didn't want the answer. Uh, it was unfair and unjust and not kind. And I remember hanging up with her and... Uh, 
And I just, at that, I lost it. Because I knew. I knew. And I remember I just collapsed. I'm on the floor, and my stomach is in knots, and I'm crying. Like, I'm not just, like, I'm, like, the, like I can barely, I can't catch my breath. I feel like my head's going to explode. And I'm just saying, God, oh, God, please, God. You see, when I, when I was sitting in that place, I wasn't saying why or why me or I'm just crying out. Maybe, maybe you've been there too. Israel, Israel was there. That's exactly where they were at. They didn't have control. There, there was no answer, no, no fix, nothing that they could do about it. If God didn't show up and do something, they couldn't do anything about it themselves. And so we see what they say. Verse 23 of chapter 2 says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Now listen, verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The NIV tries to help us understand it, that last section in verse 25 a little bit better. So they, they say, and was concerned about them. But, but the Hebrew, uh, actually there is just two words. Elohim yada. Uh, the ESV uh, translates it, uh, in this particular case, I like the ESV translation a little bit better. They, they say, so God looked on the Israelites and God knew. That's what the word yada means, knew. God knew. When, 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 when we think of the word like knowing or knows or knew, like it's, it, we sometimes just kind of assume it's this like, thing out there that like you're just aware of but that's not what the word yada means the word yada in hebrew is a deep deep knowing it's not just simply an awareness it's 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 an it's an engagement with and so when they cry out to god god says i hear it and i remember and i look i see you but more than that i know I know it means that I'm with you. I'm not separated from you. I'm with you and I'm coming. I'm rescuing. It's already begun. We don't always feel that. We don't always see that. Look at what uh, Mike Wilkerson says about this word. He says this is a shocking word to the Israelites who would have, would have read this. And it says, to be known by God is to be loved, to be in the best place you could possibly be. This passage reveals God's character in his commitment to intervene. Just as knowing here isn't mere awareness, so also remembering his covenant isn't mere recall. It is a movement into action. These were his covenant people. Pharaoh would not ultimately have his way. God knows he yadas your suffering. 
You're not alone in the fight. And whatever it is that's causing the suffering, causing the pain, that doesn't get to have the last word. Now, that doesn't mean that the pain instantly goes away, right? It doesn't even mean that the pain will go away in this life. It doesn't even mean that death will never visit. But it does mean that God will ultimately have his way. God is with you. And, and why do we know this? Why, why, why do we know this is true? Why do we know this isn't just words? Remember what I said about the book of Exodus? That it actually points us to Jesus. We know that God understands because we read Jesus' suffering in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is with his disciples the night before he's about to go through some of the most intense suffering any human being has ever gone through, and he wants them to pray with him. And so they go to the garden in verse 36, and Jesus says, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 38, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. These aren't just like figurative words. Jesus is in that place where his stomach is in knots and his head feels like it's going to explode and he can barely breathe because the pain and sorrow is so deep and he begins to cry out to his God. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here's the reality. Jesus could have walked away from the suffering. He didn't have to suffer. He could have called down angels. He could have said, I'm done. Enough. But instead, Jesus chooses to go to the cross because he knows it's the Father's will. Jesus says, you are not alone in your suffering. Instead of running from it, Jesus accepts it and walks into it, and he suffers for us. Jesus is uh, given the name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel in our suffering. He's God with us in our suffering. Jesus promises to never leave us or forsake us. He's not a God who just hears about our suffering and comes alongside of us. He's a God who has entered into our suffering, who gets it completely and fully. He knows the pain that you're walking through, pain that maybe you feel helpless against. And he says, not only do I know, I see, I'm here, I'm with you. That's what God does. Look, when I was laying on my floor, crying out to God. I, I, I don't know how to describe it other than to say that I felt his nearness, his love, in spite of my pain, so close and real. I knew that he was there with me. Uh, Sarah experienced this truth as well. Uh, now, she didn't, like, instantly become a Christian. Uh, quite honestly, she hated God. Actually, she didn't even realize that she hated God. Uh, she said she was an atheist and didn't believe in God. Even the thought of a God existing was too painful. And so she loved debating any religious kids at her high school on why God didn't exist. It was like her joy, and she was pretty smart cookie, so she was shredding some of these little punk sophomores and juniors. And, but to, 
two kids got up the nerve to invite her to church. They didn't really think that she would come, but they knew they were getting destroyed in these arguments, and so they were hoping somebody at church might be able to battle her a little bit better. So they invited her to church, and to their shock, she says yes. Now, she didn't come to church because she was excited to find out about Jesus. She came to church because she was excited to blow up a few more of these high school kids. And so she showed up, and it was great. She started having some debates with some of the other high school kids in the youth group, and then, though, the service started. And uh, Sarah said that as the church began to worship and the word of God was open, she said, something inside of me broke. She said, for the very first time in my life, I experienced the power and presence of God and I couldn't deny it. I wanted to deny it. It was actually too painful to acknowledge, but I knew it was true. So over the course of a number of months... In community and engaging with God and his spirit and his word, she became a Christian. In fact, a few years later, she wound up marrying one of the boys that had invited her to church. Isn't that awesome when we can draw up really cute, pretty Hallmark bows on our suffering? But there wasn't a Hallmark bow to draw up because Sarah had experienced unspeakable trauma. And that doesn't just go away. You see, the suffering she had experienced at the hands of an abusive and torturous father, stepfather, still carried with her. And her marriage was awful. And her husband, he didn't know what to do. And he started getting really bitter and frustrated and, and, and she knew enough and knew how to keep things at bay enough that he looked like the bad guy because he's always getting frustrated. But the truth was, is there was all kinds of stuff that both of them needed to work on, but she had deep, deep things. But they didn't give up. And so together, they started seeing a counselor they started getting more real in, in community, bringing godly, trusted friends into their lives to, to, to share with and, and open up with. And Sarah said that one of the first times she was able to think of God as actually loving her was when everything started to break and click at the same time. You see, her, her stepdad was so brutal that the thought of a loving father was just impossible to even imagine. Sarah uh, says this, Wilkerson shares, he says, Sarah finally believed that God is good and that Jesus can identify with her suffering. All by itself, this was like having the light switched on in a dark room where she'd sat alone for so long. Yet this was only the beginning of her healing. So much damage done to her over so many years would take time to heal, time with her heavenly father. There were many sleepless nights. Her heart hurt too much for sleep. One hour she would feel desperately alone and cry out with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice she doesn't cry out to Jesus. She cries out with Jesus. You see, those were the words Jesus cried out as he was suffering on the cross. 
He says an hour later, she felt so close to her heavenly father that it was as if he were gently holding her as she rested her head on his chest and cried. Later, though, she would feel alone again and would continue crying out. She had never felt such deep grief or felt so close to her father. And as she plumbed the depths of her sorrow, she clung to this promise and looked forward to the renewal at the end of all of her grief. God is good. I am his precious child. And that is enough. God can be trusted even in, especially in, the shadow of our suffering. Because God Yadaz. God knows. Because God is Emmanuel. God is with us. And so if you are in the fire right now, remember the prayer, simple and profound, that Sarah prayed. God wants you to know that he is good and you are his precious child. And that is enough. Father God, um, you hate sin and all that it brings. You hate it. You hate it because of what it does to us. You hate it because of what it does to us. And you hate it so much that you were willing to send your own son to come to this earth, to die on the cross, and you raised him back to life. He suffered once for all that we don't have to suffer for eternity. But God, right now, we live in the in-between, and God, it is hard, and sometimes we wonder, where are you? And can I actually trust you? Because this is not right, and it's not fair, and I don't like it. God, remind us that you are a God who knows. You see, you hear, you remember, and you know. And because you are Emmanuel, you are God with us. You didn't run from suffering yourself. You stepped into it for us. And so you are with us in it now. Let us be reminded, God, let us know that. God, you take suffering, this terrible thing, and you use it to shape us more and more into the image of Christ God, it is, it is a cruel yet beautiful and useful tool. God, allow us to be shaped for your glory. That others would look at us, even in the midst of our suffering, and realize that there is something different about the God that we serve because he is not far off. He is not simply asking us to endure it. It's not simply because we deserve it. But rather, he enters into our suffering. God, you enter into our suffering. So I pray right now, especially for the folks that are in the fire right now, God, let them know that you're here. God, I pray for folks that, that they haven't given themselves to you yet, and so maybe the suffering, the pain that they're experiencing, they're trying to figure out how to do it on their own, God, and none of us are able to. So God, would today, would you just start a work in their heart, in their mind? God, that they might take that burden and be able to, to offer it to you, to invite you in. 
to their life and to their suffering, that you can begin to bear their burden with them. And God, for the rest of us who maybe suffering isn't what we're hitting or dealing with right now, but God, it's coming because it comes for all of us. God, give us faith now. Give us truth now so that when that time comes and suffering, the evil one is shouting at us to question your reality, that we will stand firm to say, God is in this with me. And though I can't see him right now, and though the pain isn't going away, he is near and he knows. And the day is coming when he's going to return and make all things new. Wipe every tear from every eye. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.